Good morning. Let me just acknowledge before I get started today that I have nothing better to say about Psalm 91 than what Psalm 91 has to say for itself. I feel a little bit like a park ranger standing between a group of tourists and the Grand Canyon. I'm sure that the park ranger has a lot of great things to say, but there comes a moment where you say, could you just sort of, we we didn't come to hear you. Uh, We came to see this. And Psalm 91 is one of those incredible passages of scripture. It is, I will suggest to you, one of the greatest poems ever written. It has spawned its own uh, fan fiction, its own works of art based off of it. Consider just a few quick examples. Uh, From the earliest times, Christians and Jewish believers have carved the words of Psalm 91 onto bracelets, onto necklaces, onto jewelry, onto amulets. Some were worn for good reasons to remind them of the words of Scripture, and some as ways of warding off evil spirits and demons. It has been used in more recent times by legendary composers such as Felix Mendelssohn and Madonna. (laughs) Jimmy Stewart, the famous actor from It's a Wonderful Life, Vertigo, and other classic films, carried a copy of Psalm 91 in his shirt pocket in his various missions as a bomber pilot in World War II. He prayed it before every mission and later said Psalm 91 was the psalm that kept him sane during the war. But perhaps the most famous uses of Psalm 91 come from two characters you've surely heard of. Jesus used it several times in important moments in his ministry, and Satan used it. In fact, we will today go through some of the only words, I believe, I'm going to suggest, the only words in human history which you can properly attribute as quotes to both God and the devil. Psalm 91 is my favorite psalm. I checked the rules before I got started. You are allowed to have a favorite psalm. It's permitted. Uh, Psalm 91 is my favorite psalm. It's deeply nostalgic for me. My father used to pray this psalm over me and my brother many nights as we were getting ready to go to sleep. He'd come in and say, let's pray the blessings of Psalm 91. And he would say, he that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And Justin and Joel will say the Lord, and then we would say with him, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. What I didn't know at the time as a small child is that we were joining generations of believers who've prayed this psalm in that way. And it's continued to be a tradition in our family. My brother painted it over my niece's crib when they brought her home from the hospital. And we're now teaching Ezra to sort of saying these words in his, his faulting voice as he tries to learn what these words mean. Psalm 91 is filled with powerful statements. But we shouldn't forget just right at the outset that it's a poem. Poems have certain expectations when we come to them. Poems don't try to solve all our philosophical or theological questions. They're not here to give you the full look at the gospel. In fact, the opening words should, should tell us this. He that dwells. Psalm 91 just starts from the assumption that there's someone who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. It will not get into the gospel. This psalm is not going to dig into the questions of how you become the person who dwells in the secret place. Contrast it with Psalm 15, which says, O Lord, who may ascend on your holy tent, and who may go on your holy hill and dwell there. He who has clean hands, a pure heart, who does not swear by what is false, the one who does these things will never be shaken. Psalm 91 will get into none of that. It's interested in none of these questions. It says, there's someone who dwells in the secret place, and I want to tell you about the blessings of Yahweh on the one who trusts in him. Now, there are two expectations we tend to have when we come to poetry as English speakers. I don't probably even need to tell you what they are, We expect that the words will keep to a certain time, and we expect that the words will rhyme. (laughs) We expect this from all of our poetry. Now, no less a literary legend than C.S. Lewis wrote in his reflection on the Psalms that it's an evidence of the sovereignty of God that the Psalms don't rhyme or keep to a meter. And the reason is because it's very hard to translate 
metered words or rhyming words into other languages. English poems that are translated, the translators are always trying to decide between three things. Should we preserve the meaning, the meter structure, or the rhyme? But in Hebrew, we don't have to worry about that, thankfully. They just left off two of those completely. They used their own conventions. And instead, Lewis tells us we should focus on what he calls rhyming of meaning. That is the repetition of the same idea several times in a psalm to bring us back to the main point. In other words, the couplet, the, two, the dual statement of a single idea, is sort of the building block of Hebrew poetry. And we've got a classic example here in the opening. Verse 1, He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. One idea expressed two times. Now, I need to confess right up front. I hated Hebrew couplets as a child. They drove me crazy. And I think, I didn't know at the time, I think it's because I was destined to join the world's most boring profession. <laughs> Lawyers hate anything that's expressed twice. Don't say it twice if you can say it once, right? Don't say it in different words because now you're creating an ambiguity. There should not be two ways to understand a contract. I don't want to be unclear about what the laws that govern me mean. I don't want to read the Constitution and say, boy, they said it one way over here, but it's another way over there. And these drove me nuts. Thankfully, God did not let a lawyer edit the Psalms. He, he would have taken all the couplets out. The Psalms would be half as long and one-tenth as beautiful. And of course, we would have missed the intentional ambiguities that the writer is putting in. I've come to appreciate that these couplets are a little bit like having two eyeballs. Your eyes are actually a couple inches apart. They actually see the world differently. And your brain takes those images and puts them together. But if, if you don't see through one eye, you lose valuable information. He that dwells. In this, notice how it's, I've done it in color so you can see it. He that dwells, that's A, B, in the secret place, C, of the Most High. And then we do it again. A shall abide, B, in the shadow, C, of the Almighty. You can see it even clearer if I just smoosh them together. He that dwells abides in the secret place, shadow of the Most High Almighty. It's the same idea expressed two times in different words. God is not just wasting words. He has something to say that comes out in two different points. So, he that dwells. What does it mean to dwell? If I ask you over to lunch today at my house, you're not going to say, sure, what's, where's your dwelling? No one, no one uses this word anymore, but it's an important word because it's not the same as saying, where do you live? There are rich people who have many homes. They live in multiple places, but trying to figure out where we can tax them and where they're subject to military service and where their businesses can be regulated and all those things is important. We ask, where are they domiciled? There's a big word. Where do they dwell? That is, what's their primary place of residence? The reverse happens. Sometimes someone tries to run for mayor or some local little office, and somebody says, hey, he doesn't, he doesn't dwell here, right? That person doesn't really live here. They may have an address. They may have a, a, a tourist home, but they're not really one of us. Think about the questions you might ask if you were trying to trap somebody who said, I, live in, I dwell in Blandon. Think about what you might ask to find out if it's true. What's the name of our township? Do they know that we use two names for some strange reason for this place and that you only know one of them if you really live here? How about where do you get your groceries? If they don't know to say Boyers, well, then we know they're an Auschlender, right? Not really one of us. Or maybe you'll just ask, hey, uh, what's that smell? <laughs> Psalm 91 is not interested in people who are touring God. 
Psalm 91 is not speaking about people who have a vacation home in the church. It is not talking about people who show up a couple times a month to feel like they've fulfilled a religious obligation. Psalm 91 says he who dwells, who has made his primary place of residence in God and intends to remain there indefinitely. He who dwells in the secret place. Is God a secret? Is he a secret place? I mean, if God is a secret, he's the worst kept secret in the history of the world. You know one question I've never been asked in my entire life? God? Who? Never once have I said God and somebody said, I have no idea what that word means, what you're referring to, right? So far, anthropologists, explorers, missionaries flying planes around the world, we haven't found a group of people by canoeing a little further down the river or landing on that island who say, God, a being who will judge the living and the dead and created all things? Mm, not familiar with the concept. We're actually enlightenment rationalists on this island. We believe we all evolved from worms, right? That group does not exist, And there's a reason, because God is not a secret. So what does it mean to dwell in the secret place of the Most High? For me, this is the image of a popular resort town that sells t-shirts with its name on it that you wear when you come back from the shore, and the boardwalk is crowded, and it's noisy every night, and the beach is so busy that you can't find a place to stick your umbrella. But you have bought a home there, and you have found a private beach that no one else has access to. You sit along the same ocean, but you experience it differently. You hear the sound of the waves without the distractions, the, the, the noise, the light pollution. You have found the secret place, the cove that no one else can come to. This raises an interesting thing about God, which is that the secret place you have found is the same as the secret place I have found, but God treats it differently for you. That there are things that you need from God that I don't need that he salves your wounds in a way he doesn't salve mine, that the protections and the reasons you come to God for healing and help are different from the reasons I have come to him for healing and help. Now, the secret place somehow continues to be a singular place for us. And I want you to notice, I'll emphasize it a few more times, throughout this psalm, it is singular. It is not plural. It is not corporate. He that dwells. This is about you. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High. This is the first of three nicknames or descriptors of God we're going to get in this psalm. It's also the simplest of the three. Elyon is the Hebrew word. It means most high. I guess I didn't need to tell you that. It just means most high, right? It reduces the world to a two-dimensional image. And down at the bottom of the ladder is all that is base and human and unholy. And as you climb the ladder, you find the most high. And if you've come to someone for protection, it's very relieving to hear that there's just simply nothing higher than him. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide. So now we actually come to the center of the sentence. This is the verb. This is actually the verb in the sentence. We talked about dwell, but that wasn't a verb. It was a participle, if you care. All we really are saying there is he that dwells in the secret place of the Most High is the subject of the sentence. We might as well call him Bob. Bob shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And we've described Bob a little further so you know who Bob is. But shall abide is the center of what this sentence is saying. What's the difference between dwelling and abiding? Now the Hebrew couplet goes to work. We said we dwell, but now we're finding out about abiding. Think about what you use the word abiding for. I will not abide these insults, you might say. I'm not going to put up with it. Or you might, if you're a particularly angry lawyer, write a letter that says, I expect you to abide by the terms of this agreement. I expect you to put up with it, follow it, live by it. Further, we might even say abiding means to thrive. Think about how Jesus uses the word. In John 1.14, we learn that he came and made his dwelling among us. Fourteen chapters later, he invites you to abide in him, that you must, may bear much fruit. To abide is to plant, to thrive, it's to get used to things. 
When Lena and I first moved to our home in Maiden Creek Township, we, <laughs> we noticed every night that there was this very loud train. And we'd wake up and say, oh my goodness, did you hear that train? And now, several years in, we sleep happily through the night, and our guests say, did you hear that train last night? There are things that when you dwell, you begin to abide them. Coming and dwelling in God means getting used to Him. It means adjusting your expectations to His. It means changing the things that you think are weird. It means changing the things that you want in life. The one who dwells ends up abiding in the shadow. Shadow. It's an interesting word. This can mean shade, shadow, or side. The one who dwells in his shadow. Suddenly we find that we have been this entire time in the shadow of something enormous, the Almighty. We have this powerful force looming over us that we weren't even aware of. Have you ever had this experience? Suddenly realizing you were in the shadow of something huge? It's a little hard to do because normally it doesn't sneak up on you, right? Something that's huge, a building, a mountain, whatever, you, you know it's there the whole time. It's not a surprise. But I can tell you a time I had this experience. When I was in, in college, I lived in Norfolk, Virginia. So, uh, I understand the world's largest naval base. Uh, I haven't verified any of these facts, so I don't know. It's the world's largest naval base, they told me. And it's true, I'm told. All right, well, there you go. You got it, you got it, with authority. And, and one time, we went out. My mom said, let's go take one of these tours. We got out on a boat, maybe you know, three times the size of the stage, and we went out, and we looked at these enormous destroyers and cruisers, and the guy's telling us, and I'm going to make up more facts. You can tell us if they're true. <laughs> you know, uh, that one there, that can launch a Tomahawk missile 100 miles and hit a dumpster. You know, that one right there, that's, that's 10,000 pounds of tons of displacement, and it's, uh, they parked that in a port, and it's diplomacy in action, you know, and it's, oh my goodness. And suddenly I realized I had been living in the shadow of the American Navy my entire life. That my peace and my prosperity and the fact that I don't wake up worried about what's going to happen to me tomorrow are largely due to these enormous vessels that I didn't even know existed, really. To dwell in the shadow of the Almighty is sometimes to realize that you're sitting in the shade of something powerful. Xerxes, the great emperor of Persia, you all remember Xerxes, Esther's husband? Well, when he went and invaded Greece, he took hundreds of thousands of soldiers with him. And he came to a narrow pass where a couple hundred or a few thousand, depending on who you believe, Greek soldiers stopped and said, basically, you're not coming through here. And so he sent several messages to them. Lay down your arms and I'll give you vineyards and pastures. And they said, no thanks, we have vineyards and pastures. And he sent a second message that said, lay down your arms, for thus declares the king of kings. That's what he called himself. And they sent back a message that said, come and take them. The third message was, do you not know that I have the power to order 10,000 of the archers to fire their arrows and they will blot out the sun? And the response was, good, then we will fight in the shade. As a Christian, you fight in the shade. You dwell in the shadow of something so powerful and so enormous that although you are required to fight, the way you fight is different. We do not wage war with the weapons of this world. In the shadow of the Almighty, I don't think this is a term I need to spend much time on. The Almighty, all power comes from Him and through Him and to Him. And I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress and my God in whom I will trust. Notice that this psalm is singular. He does not say Israel will say. We, he is our refuge, our fortress, our God. He says, I, I will take personal responsibility. This is my God. He's the one that I have declared allegiance to. 
There's, this is almost arrogant if you don't have the right to do it. Can you imagine me jumping off the tour ship and swimming over to the destroyer and getting aboard and saying, Captain, let's take this thing for a spin. I'm a taxpayer after all. That's not how it works. You don't get to personally claim this. But this psalmist says, I happen to know that this God invites me into personal relationship with him. I will say, I will tell anybody who wants to know that he is my refuge, my fortress. What's the difference between a refuge and a fortress? I'll suggest to you a refuge is a place you go to hide, and a fortress is a place you go to fight. A refuge is a place where you go to seek asylum from a nation more powerful than yourself for protection. A fortress is a place where you go to enlist to fight for that nation. A refuge, one more thought, protects you. It keeps you safe, but the fortress you fight to protect. You stand at the window and shoot at the people who are attacking the fortress. Don't give up the ship, right? You fight for that thing. And throughout this psalm, we begin to detect that God first protects us, but then sends us on offense. In Psalm 18, David says, he prepares my hands for war. He teaches my fingers for the day of battle. Being prepared to fight is what this psalm is about. He's my refuge. He is my fortress. He is my God. This is the third descriptor of Yahweh that we get in this passage. Now, you might think, well, sure, he's God. I mean, what's what's the big deal here? I'm going to suggest, and this will be a little wild, that maybe this would be better translated in your Bible if it were a lowercase g. Because what he's really saying is not Yahweh is God, but he is my God. Of all of the gods in the world, of all the things that compete for attention, of all of the false gods and idols and statues in the world, this one is my God. I declare allegiance, I I pledge allegiance to Yahweh, he says. This one is my God. This is also the first word that he uses that gives God agency. Up until now, I mean, almighty, maybe, but he's been a refuge, a fortress, a shelter, a hiding place. And now he says, also, he's my God. He is capable at any point of rising up and going forth. My refuge, my fortress, and then also my God in whom I will trust. This is the New Testament formulation from Hebrews 11. The one who comes to God and would please him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He is my God in whom I will trust. Surely he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and the noisome pestilence. Oh my. Well, my father has a bit of a southern accent, so this was always doubly fun. The snare of the fowler and the noisome pestilence. Touch your neighbor and say snare of the fowler and noisome pestilence. All right, well, maybe not. I loved these words as a kid and I had not a blessed clue what they meant. What is a fowler? It turns out that a fowler is a basketball player who plays bad defense. (laughs) Okay. No, a fowler is one who traps a bird. They put a trap in a tree. They place it under leaves. They leave it in a place that it will be tricked into coming into. Right? A fowler is one who intentionally sets out to hunt a bird and tricks it by deception. He will deliver you from the intentional tricks of men with malicious motives who are out to get you, and from the noisome pestilence. Pestilence is a plague. It's a wasting disease. It's a pandemic, if you will. And what's noisome? Turns out that means foul-smelling. This word is probably better translated deadly, but I just had to get noisome pestilence in there. Deadly pestilence. Think about the way that kings used to retreat to summer homes when the bubonic plague would come out. A third of Europe died from it. Armies couldn't protect powerful people from this disease. It got people by chance. He will protect you from the intentional acts of malicious men, and he will protect you from the dumb, random chance that gets people. His protection is total. It is complete. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. 
He will cover you with his pinions, his feathers. This verse is really interesting to me, and I think we could spend a ton of time on it. We won't. But he will cover you with his feathers under his wings. You will find refuge. I will suggest to you, I didn't Google it, but I think this is one of three verses I could think of in the last two weeks as I was thinking about this, in which God describes himself as a bird. The others are when the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and I'm not sure that exactly counts. And then there's when Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together as a hen gathers its chicks under its wings, which most scholars believe is Jesus referring back to this verse. So really, in some ways, this is the only verse where God describes himself in these terms. Usually, he talks about his hands, his eyes, his back, his face. God describes himself in human terms. So why? Why here should God resort to describing himself as a, as a, as a fowl? I'll give you two reasons. The first is think about the nurturing nature of this image. He covers you with his feathers. Can you think of anything softer than down feathers? He throws his nurturing love upon you. He doesn't just gather you in his arms. He throws over you his feathers. There is incredible comfort in this image. God gathers together, and this is again where we finally see God acting in the psalm. He's been passive, or he's been a bulwark of protection, but now he actually gathers us in to keep us safe. Under his wings we will find refuge. But he could have done that with any other number of analogies. I think, I'll suggest to you, you don't have to believe me. You don't actually have to accept anything I say today, I guess. He says this because he's referring back. I think this is the rhyming of meaning that Lewis was talking about. He's referring back to the snare of the fowler. Because sometimes we forget that the trap isn't actually set for us. Sometimes we can get very caught up in our fears about what's going to happen to us, and we feel like we're under attack, and the, the, the spiritual warfare is against us. And there is some truth to that. But it's only because it's after a bigger bird. There is a bigger bird behind us. Living in the shadow of the Almighty is really exciting for the most part. It's an image of safety. It's also terrifying because all the arrows are flying our direction. They're flying at what's behind us, but we happen to get caught up in the crossfire. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness or his truth is a shield and buckler. Well, buckler is just a sword. Uh, his faithfulness or truth, the word is emeth, which is where we get amen. It means faithful or true. And really, it's just a matter of context in this case, whether you think this is faithfulness or truth. I'm going to go with truth for the sake of discussion. Think about how carrying weapons identifies you in battle. If you carry around a sword or a shield, there is no question as you cross through no man's land or enemy territory that you are on the other side. If you don't carry weapons, you might get away with it. You might slip through enemy territory and no one will know. Do you know that carrying around God's truth is a very good way to make yourself a target? Do you know that carrying his truth like a banner, no one else will see it as a banner. They will only see God's truth as a weapon. That is why people react the way that they do. Carrying God's truth identifies you with the enemy, right, from the perspective of the world. But here's the good news. You don't want to be caught without your weapons in the middle of enemy territory. You can't lay down God's truth because it's your only shield and sword. It's all you have to trust in. Notice again that it begins defensive and moves offensive. His truth will be your shield and sword. It will protect you from the fiery darts of the enemy. It will be the sword you draw to respond. This also raises another really interesting thing about this psalm. He's the Almighty. He's the Most High. But nowhere in Psalm 91 does it say that God rides out to crush his enemies. Nowhere in this psalm do we see God unleash his power on them. Actually, God's power is entirely confined in this psalm to protecting us, training us, preserving us, growing us, 
so that we are armed with his truth to go out and fight. You, in other words, are being equipped by this psalm to go to battle, not to rest in the secret place. His truth will be your shield and buckler. And you will not fear the terror that comes by night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. Well, now our poet has gotten a little, little out of hand. We have now a couplet of couplets. We have something that I think young Joel would have absolutely hated, right? We have not the idea to express twice, but two ideas expressed twice. Put them together and you'll see something here. The first and the third lines here, he says, you will not fear the terror that comes by night, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness. Think about the difference between the way that fear works at night versus the arrow that flies by day and the destruction that lays waste at noonday. Think about the difference between fear at night and terror in the day, in other words. Fear at night is irrational fear. It's the child who says, I'm scared of what's under the bed. You turn on the lights, you show them what's under the bed, you turn the lights back out and they're still scared, right? And you walk down the hall chuckling, oh, that's so silly. And then you get in bed and you hear a bump downstairs and go, what was that? Fear that comes by night is irrational fear. It's also the anticipatory fear. It's what makes it worse. It's, it's the thing that we're scared of. It's the thought that the pestilence that stalks in the darkness might get me. The robber might break in. Think about how, much we, how many links we go to to lock all the doors at night just in the, the, the chance, the off chance that something might happen. But the terror that comes by day is different. When ISIS went around murdering people, and committing war crimes and destroying important relics of the history of civilization, they did so in the day. They did so in broad daylight, and they filmed it because they wanted the world to see. Wars typically happen during the daylight. In fact, sometimes they stop at night because, well, it's hard to shoot the other guy if you can't see him, right? They happen in full daylight. That's when terror reigns. Fear comes by night. It's the thing that drives you crazy. But the terror is what reigns by day. He says that God will protect you from both of these. He will be there to preserve you from the fears that haunt your mind. I think of the New Testament promise, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. It's the peace of God that keeps the mind from driving itself insane during the night, but it's also what preserves us in the middle of things during the day that no man can explain. There are terrors in the world we live in, and there have been from the beginning of time, that will rattle your psyche. And they're not irrational. They're very real. But it says that you will not fear them. Notice, it doesn't say you won't go through them. It does not say you won't experience these things. It just says you won't fear them. You will walk through the fire and not be burned. This brings us to the next verse. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Well, it's at this point that I think the psalmist has become deceptively discouraging. Because there are two promises of God in this simple statement, that a thousand fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. That's beautiful. It's wonderful. And also the other promise of God, less accepted and less exciting, that a thousand will fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand. The New Testament version of this is Jesus' promise in this world, you will have trouble, but fear not for I've overcome the world. But again, one of those promises in this world, you will have trouble. It's a promise of God. You know those promise of God banners people print out? I'm waiting for someone to put this one in big letters right in the middle. In this world, you will have trouble. And then all the other happy ones all around it, right? Because this is a promise, a guarantee from God. You are destined to go through trouble. 
This brings us to a question about Psalm, Psalm 91. Many people raise, well, this feels like this psalm doesn't deal with the fact that our lived experience is that God does not always deliver the righteous out of trouble. I don't think I need to explain this. We have a lot of people in this church who in the past year, two years, five years, ten years, have walked through incredible grief and trauma and pain. You know that God does not always save you from the dumb random chance and the intentional malicious actions of others. So what are we to make of Psalm 91? Well, for one thing, I think we should recognize that Psalm 91 is telling us right in this verse that this will occur. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand is the most poetic way I can think to say death will come very, very near you, but it will not come near you. This verse is a paradox. It says death will be a part of your life. Grief and pain and sorrow, it will be all around you. Elizabeth Elliot once gave a series of lectures called Why Suffering is Never for Nothing. She lost her husband, Jim Elliot, who was trying to share the gospel to Indians when he and four of his best friends were murdered. And she writes about this very verse, this exact verse. She says, now how was I to teach my two-year-old daughter that her daddy had died in the jungle, but that this verse applied to her? God is our refuge, but was he Jim's refuge, she asked. And she says, I wanted to teach her these words, but it says, she said, I, I learned I had to teach her the same way that I taught her, Jesus loves me, this I know. Not because her daddy was killed. She didn't know it that way. No, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. She came to find that this verse was here because our lived experience doesn't always immediately show us the way in which God resolves our pain and delivers us. She says, instead, this verse taught me to rush to God as my only hope and my only refuge when I went through pain and sorrow and suffering in life. We might, in, otherwise, in other words, ask, why not us? Why should we expect that we are not called to go through suffering and difficulty? Why would we not expect that pain is supposed to be part of our lives? If our faith is built upon the fact that God sent his only son to suffer for us, what exactly makes us think that we're exempt from the process? Rather, the Bible teaches us to count it all joy when we walk through sufferings and difficulties of various kinds. I think this verse could be rephrased a bit if we wanted to. Suffering will come near you, but it will not come near you. It will come near you, but it will not touch you. It will touch you, but you will not flinch. Let me take one more shot at this. Think of it this way. Who wrote Psalm 91? We don't know. I'll make it very easy. There's all sorts of theories. It was Moses, it was David, it was an anonymous songwriter, singer of Israel, all sorts of theories about why, and nobody has any good evidence as to why we should believe it's any of them. I don't know who wrote Psalm 91, but I do know one fact about the writer of Psalm 91 for sure, and that is that he's dead. <laughs> I am totally sure that the writer of Psalm 91 is dead. I'm sure that the first group he read it to around a fire and got their thoughts on it is dead. I'm sure that the harpist who accompanied him behind him at the temple, that that guy's dead, that the first people who heard it are dead. They're all dead. Nowhere should we think that the, psalm, the psalmist believed he was going to be exempt. In fact, he refers at the end to a long life, meaning he did expect at some point to die, not eternal life. He believed that there was an end to this point at some, at somewhere. But what he is describing in poetic form is the fact that God teaches us to walk through pain and suffering and difficulty, and that it's actually part of the plan. We tend to think this is the enemy attacking us, with thousands falling all around us. But instead, it is God sending us out to be missionaries in the midst of grief, emissaries in the midst of pain, examples of what it means to walk through this. I didn't get this person's permission, but she's a pastor's kid, and she's used to being used as a sermon illustration. Uh, a year ago, Abby Miller used these words with me as we were talking about what grief is like. 
She was talking about how people came to her and said, after her father, our last pastor, passed away, why you? Why your family? And I remember her saying that, why not me? Right? Why wouldn't God use people who can handle it? Why wouldn't he want to show us, through other people's glorified suffering, what it means to exalt God in the midst of it? A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Only with your eyes should you behold the recompense of the Lord upon the wicked. The recompense of the wicked, the reward of the wicked, is how most translations render this, which seems to be accurate. The recompense of the wicked. Two quick things about this. There are things that you will not participate in because you are not wicked. You will stand back and you will see their destruction. Only with your eyes shall you see the reward that falls on the wicked. But I think there's also another side, which is that sometimes the wicked get away with things and you will not share in the rewards of wickedness. It's a promise of God that he will keep you from being defiled with getting into the rewards that the wicked receive. God does not always pay the wages of wickedness on time, but he always pays them fully and with interest. You will not, only with your eyes shall you see the recompense of the Lord upon the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling, even the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall befall you, no plague shall come near your tent. Our psalmist, he gets excited again. I don't think this was part of his original text. He just couldn't help himself. He shouted out, because you've made the Lord your dwelling, even the Most High, who is my refuge. He invites you in to claim these words. Some of you are sitting here today, and you're already thinking of the reasons this psalm isn't for you. You're sitting here and you're thinking, but you don't understand. I spent many years wandering. I didn't walk with God. Even after I became a Christian, I made a lot of mistakes. Honestly, most of the, the, the terrors I lived through are my own fault. You know, you sit through it and you think, this isn't for me. And he invites you. This psalm is, is for you to proclaim. It's for you to declare about Yahweh. It says, because you made the Lord your dwelling. Notice how he goes back to the beginning. Even the Most High, who is my refuge, he says, these promises belong to you. They're there for you. For he will give his angels charge over you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Well, this verse could be a sermon all in itself. This is the verse that Satan used to confront Jesus with during his temptation. It's a strange sentence to say out loud, so I'll try it a different way. This is the section of the word of God that the rebel of the universe used to confront the incarnate word of God with. This is the words of truth that the father of lies spoke to the embodiment of truth. There's really no way I can say it that won't feel weird. These are the words I referred to earlier. They can be attributed to both God or the devil. God said it first. It's his words. I know. But notice that he goes to Jesus with these words, and Jesus doesn't say that's not what it says. He doesn't say, no, that's not it. He says, sure, it is written in the temptation. It is written that the angels will protect me, but it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, Jesus tells us, in case you're still on the last point with me a little mentally, that Psalm 91 has to be read in context with the rest of the Bible. Jesus teaches us about context. He doesn't say, well, that's not what I said, right? Why do you think Satan used these words? Of all the words in the Old Testament he could use to describe the idea that God protects his beloved. I don't know for sure, but I will suggest to you it's because of the angels, he will give his angels charge over you. Satan, an angel of light. It's like this still boiled his blood all these years later after the first time he'd heard from Yahweh, I'm going to give you charge over humans to keep them safe. And he said, that's beneath me. You can hear it almost in his words to Jesus. Isn't this the whole thing that started this fight between you and I? Aren't these angels given charge to protect them lest they dash their feet against little stones? This verse as, as the kids say, it hits different when you consider 
that it is about angels in the biblical sense, not the fat baby cherub angels that you have on your Christmas tree. This is not precious moments angels that he's referring to. Think about how we see angels in the Bible. Outside of the notable Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the rest of the times we see angels in the Bible, they typically have swords dripping with blood. They're killing Assyrian armies. They're passing over people who have blood on their houses. They're not terribly pleasant creatures. These are the warriors of the universe. These are the powerful warrior angels that prophets would fall asleep when they were speaking to them because it was such an overwhelming experience to hear their voices. Remember, an angel actually struck Zechariah dumb for nine months just for questioning him, right? Just for questioning him. He's like, you know what? I'm I'm revoking your talking privileges, right? These are powerful beings. And he says, he will give his angels charge over you. This is like like when the Secret Service is barreling through a city in an armored van with some of the best trained soldiers from the army who are protecting some four-year-old to drop her off at, at daycare, you know, because she happens to be related to someone very important. He will give his angels charge over you. It's an incongruous image. It's an image that says he will give his angels charge over you lest you dash your foot against a stone. God has assigned the most powerful warriors in the universe to ensuring you don't stub your toe. What is he trying to say? His emphasis is that God cares about not just those big, terrifying, big pains in your life, but every tiny little thing. He is the father that loves you, who throws the soft, downy wings over you to protect you. That even when we walk through pain, he says, I care about this. This hurts my heart. When you lay a little child down to go to sleep and you think about how much you love that child and how you would do anything to protect that child, you're experiencing just a fraction of how Yahweh feels about his beloved. He will give his angels charge over you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands. And what are they doing? They're protecting your feet, which leads us into the next section. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. Because you see, he doesn't just lift you up to protect your feet. He puts your feet back down. Now, if I told you all that today when you leave this service and you walk out that front door, you're going to be treading on serpents and scorpions. I think quite a few of you would say, great, is there a back door? Is there another way that I'm allowed to leave here? You will tread on the lion and the cobra. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. This is a powerful beckoning back to the first words of the gospel in Genesis 3 that said, he will strike your heel, but you will crush his head. And the purpose of the angels lifting us up is not, it's not just to keep our feet safe and comfortable. It's not because he wants to set us down on carpet. It's because he wants to teach us to tread on serpents and scorpions and to triumph over all the power of the enemy. By the way, Luke chapter 10, this is what Jesus paraphrases those words as treading on serpents and scorpions, and he refers to why he's given them power over demons. This is a direct reference, in other words, to demons. He's saying you will trample demonic power by just walking through your life. And these verses really strike me, because frankly, I don't know about all of you, but I'm not really doing anything with my life. I appreciate the introduction and everything, but I'm, I'm just a country lawyer, truly. I'm a guy who spends his day arguing with people's neighbors about like where they put the dirt pile. Okay, I'm not doing anything to change the world. I'm very confident of that. But the Bible says, this promise right here says you, in your little world that you think isn't important, that the very act of you walking by faith, living your life, doing the things you do day to day, you don't realize it, but you're walking on scorpions. You are treading on the power of the enemy. This is the call of God, the mission of God on you. So when you look around and you see terrible things around you, realize that that's because God has called you to this very place 
to tread on the serpents and the scorpions in Berks County, Pennsylvania. And so the psalm concludes. It says, now, from the very words of God, because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. We, we might have thought this is just some guy's opinion about God, but God comes forth at the end to speak. His booming voice, the voice of the Almighty, the shadow that has been behind us, speaks. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. Notice the reference back to the beginning. The Most High sets us upon high. The promise of God is that we will be lifted up and set with him. We will be with him. Because he has known my name. Not enough merely to say I know about God. I know about a God. I'm aware that God exists. But he says he's known my name. There's a personal connection there. He will call on me and I will answer him. What an interesting statement. You return the calls of people you care about. There are plenty of calls I don't return. Plenty of calls I don't answer. There's plenty of uh, you know, the spam calls that I just hang up on in the middle of it. right? But he says, when he calls me, I will answer. He's got that sort of privilege. I will be with him in trouble. Once again, not that he will not have trouble, but that I will be with him in trouble. I will be walking right alongside him. I will be his strength in the midst of that trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. Well, deliver him and honor him. Not enough that God delivers us, in other words. He chooses to honor us. He doesn't drag us out like muddy refugees out of the boat, get the water out of our lungs, smack us around and say, that was stupid, what'd you do that for? He doesn't, he doesn't treat us like the scraggly beggars that we are. Instead, he throws his coat on us, he gives us his signet ring, he orders the fattened calf to be slaughtered, and he invites us to be guests at a banquet held in our honor. It's not enough, in other words, that God's just barely reaching in and getting us out of the fire. He says, I will deliver him and I will honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. I think that this verse reminds us of kind of the way Psalm 23 closes. It says, you know, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The psalmists in their own quiet, foreshadowing way are telling us that there is an eternal life, there is an eternal destiny for the people of God who are found to take refuge in him and that this belongs to those who choose him. Well, I can't think of a better way to close this today than to pray Psalm 91 over you. And so I want to do that now. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And the people of Trinity Bible Fellowship Church will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress and my God in whom I will trust. Surely he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and the noisome pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His truth will be your shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror that comes by night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you behold and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling, even the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall befall you, no plague shall come near your tent. He will give his angels charge over you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands, lest you dash your foot against a stone." You will tread on the lion and the cobra. On the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, declares the Lord, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. These are the blessings that Yahweh gives to the one who trusts in him.